Today's episode is sponsored by Feather. Feather provides digital marketing tools and strategies for nonprofits of all shapes and sizes, including the Humane Society of North Central Florida. Stick around for the break to hear how Feather powered their $300 digital ad campaign that raised nearly $6,000 in just one day. Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Becky, what's happening? I'll tell you what's happening. I'll just say say this just for a minute as I tone set before we bring our guest in. We are privileged to get to talk to the most incredible visionaries and people around the world who are doing the most incredible things to equalize, to bring community together. And sometimes those like geniuses are literally in your backyard and you know them. We're bringing on a friend and a mutual friend that's been kind of in our world for decades But it's just fascinating, you know, when you maybe last saw somebody 20 years ago to catch up and figure out what's been happening right here in your own community. It just speaks to, you know, when you follow your passion, when you really get in a lane that you come alive about, magical stuff happens. And this is the story today. And we're so excited to introduce you to Jonathan Dodson. We're going to call him John on this, but he's the CEO of Pivot. And it's right here in Oklahoma City. For those of you that know, we're baked here, here in Oklahoma, and we love this community so much. And that's kind of John's story too. You know, he was a former banker turned developer and he just had this value of creating partnerships. And he really wanted to chase something new with Pivot to just pour into the community. You know, we were going through a renaissance in a lot of ways in a lot of areas of town, but John kind of found these projects that weren't getting the attention of the bankers in the industry, that weren't getting the attention of just the overall community support. And he started to piece this together, you know, working and really being an ally to communities that were overlooked and right here at home. And he has made these projects come alive, um, really coming to the, la- to the table with such humility and such partnership and such allyship. And, you know, when we were catching up, I was like, oh my gosh, we have got to bring this conversation to the podcast because, you know, we don't love to stay in our lane of nonprofit because we want the walls to be broken. And I hope this conversation today, and I know it's going to grow your heart and mind of like, how can we work across the aisle, which is like my least favorite term ever, but how can we work <laughs> together? How can we go grab hands for fighting for something better. And today, John's going to tell us the story of East Point specifically, which is this really magical project that brought the community together. And then, you know, just got casually recognized with this ULI Global Award of Excellence. International International Award. (laughs) Award for a development that just doesn't happen for the small guys like this. It's like a really amazing award to just recognize what's happened. But the story of that, the story of John is going to just warm everybody's heart. And, And John, I'm just so glad to have you on the podcast. Welcome to our show. I'm so excited to be here. This is crazy. It's like 20 years <laughs> in the making, guys. So thanks for letting me be a part of your world. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge honor. Take us back. I mean, tell us your story. I kind of gave some pieces of that, some breadcrumbs, but circle back. Take us to John growing up. Like, What informed this empathetic human that wanted to pour into projects like this with your expertise? Take us back and catch us up to where you are today. Yeah. So um, you know, it's funny when you look back at your past and you start trying to connect. I'm now almost 42. And so, uh, which feels really young. Um, 
but Thank uh, you for saying uh, that. <laughs> yes. Um, but you start looking back at your life and you start piecing things and seeing things that, you know, why you see the world the way that you do. And, um, you know, one of those things that I think really um, ended up changing and shaping kind of how I see the world today was just, you know, when we moved to Stillwater, uh, Oklahoma in like 90 or 91. And that move was really just a terrible move for me personally. Like I, we were moved from Tucson, Arizona and moving to Stillwater was hard and didn't have any friends. And, um, there's probably three or four years where I just felt like disconnected from like any community. And so I could, you know, walk into a room as a, you know, a little 12 year old dude and know who the bully was, who I needed to avoid, you know, how I needed to figure out you know, who to be friends with, or at least keep them, you know, from doing something, you know, to the little guy in the room. And so as that started to shape kind of how I saw things, I, you fast forward to 30, age 35. Um, and I'm sitting in my office as a banker and I just made what I thought was like the move of a lifetime, uh, to go work for this bank. And my boss walks in to my assistant and I'm sitting in the other room and he's like, if you want to keep your job, you need to have sex with me, get it on the calendar. And I heard him say it. And so, you know, like one is like, who actually says that out loud <laughs> is a good place to start. But if you move past that and you move to like the, really the devastation of his like, I mean, traditional bullying and toxic ma masculinity and everything else that put on her, that's what got me out of banking. I put my two week notice in. they gave him like a full year severance to figure out what he wanted to do with full benefits. And they gave her like four weeks to go find a new job. And so, um, I couldn't imagine working for a company like that. And so turned two week notice in and started riding my bike and started hanging out. I actually was officing out of a coffee shop. Um, I had my business card, had the address of elemental on it and uh, I had checks delivered there and everything mail. And so it was kind of during that time where I started meeting, you know, I'd been in this banking world where I was really removed from probably the reality that most people live in. And I was kind of thrust into what does it look like to be, you know, a different um, than someone else. And so to me, it was like, it made me one, have compassion on myself as 11, 12, 13 year old. Um, and like, but also thankful for the, the mechanisms, the coping mechanisms that helped me to see the world differently. But then it had gave me empathy for the people who were actually having to go through some of this. And so, um, you know, elemental coffee was really my home base for two years. And that's where the development, you know, pivot project started or pivot started. And, um, it's kind of through that that I met all of these great people, the operators of the Tower Theater. I was having coffee with him at Elemental and Steven Tyler was like, hey, I think I could actually do this. And um, I think about how many great relationships. And so that was probably phase one of the development process for me, kind of moving from a really secluded and isolated world to a world that felt a little bit more robust and full of diversity that I had just hadn't experienced before. Okay. Lot to unpack there. Um, couple things I want to say to you and, and to the audience. Our lived experience is so formative and where it points us. And I, and I see this theme on the podcast a lot when we bring in founders, um, and, and just people who are heartwired, there always seems to be a moment where the path diverges. And I'm think of you, think of you, John, and I'm visualizing you at your desk at this bank. And all of a sudden you come to the crossroads and it's like, am I going to be the one that sits here and, and stays 
in this sort of environment? Or am I going to follow my gut and take this massive leap of faith and chase something that feels better to me? And I just want to thank you deeply for doing the right thing, for doing the thing which equalizes, for doing the thing which tamps down, you know, what I would almost call like the evil of this world. And thank you for calling out um, that story as difficult it is for us to sit in that. We have to sit in that for a second and process it because we need to figure out how can we do better. And the story, your story is so baked in community. And I love that that's where you started. Like you went to the coffee shop, you went to the heart of our city. And I want, and and I see that connected to East Point. And I want to talk about what you've done at East Point and this market. And I am so endeared to it because I want more people to seize moments like this and pour into the things that we have in terms of our skill set and our networks and pour it into something good. So there's my tee up for East Point. Tell us the story of what happened when you began that led to this absolutely, I mean, the international award is to me on the side because what it's done for the community and the people is just like completely epic. So a couple of things. One is, um, and I'll, I'll refer back to this, but I think it has been a net benefit for the community. I know that it's been a net benefit for me. And so I think that's one of the foundational things that we'll keep put pushing back on is um, I like what we firmly believe is that we're the, where it's a selfish endeavor. We're the ones who benefit from being able to be a part of that community. And so we're going to do whatever the hell it takes to be a part of that community. So I'm going to put that aside for a second. I'm going to go back to elemental. So one of the things that elemental taught me, and it'll translate into what we're talking about is that, um, it's easy to have a lot of ideas that that we would say are baked in knowledge and therefore wisdom, but knowledge that isn't attached to um, relationships isn't wisdom. Typically, you can know something, but until you actually are around whatever is ant- antithetical to like what you actually hold to, it's really easy to be dogmatic, right? And so for me, being at Elemental, it was the first time, I mean, if I looked at what my world was before, it was really being around... 55 to 70 year old white men who have been very successful. And you roll that juxtaposition into being at elemental. And all of a sudden you start meeting people who don't see the world the way that you do and are really nice and kind and thoughtful. And it starts pushing against stuff. And so it doesn't mean that you can't have convictions in the midst of relationships. But I think if you have convictions without relationships, it's really hard to stand on that. I had read like 15 books on, you know, um, social justice, criminal justice reform, all this stuff. And my brother and sister-in-law kept just feeding me stuff as I was kind of in this transition phase. And I don't know if you remember at OU, they got a fraternity guy who was singing on a bus and he was talking about lynching a black man, right? And it got on video. And so they did this reconciliation conference and this guy stood up in the back and he said, if you want to know what it's like to be in my shoes, when's the last time you had someone like me over for dinner? And that like, that hit me hard because I felt like I could like, I was this very like high minded uh, progressive thinker on race with no relationships. And so I don't ever journal when I go home, like at night, but that night I went home and journaled and and this is like really pathetic, but it's honest. I said, dear God, let me have a black friend. Like that is like the most, like I didn't have any, right. Like no one in my world was there. And so I became intentionally focused on that. And um, I was lucky enough to have some people deal with me, right? Like it's a burden when you're already 
the target of a lot of different things. And then you got to like walk along somebody else and show them how naive they've been and how fabricated and isolated their world has been. So like I actually had friends who were willing to do things that they shouldn't have done for me and that I would have been put out if I had to do for someone else. And so it was through those relationships that I started seeing kind of the east side of Oklahoma City as a place that I wanted to spend more time in. You know, there was two properties that opened up that we felt like we could buy. And so, you know, I don't know if you want me to get yet into the philosophy of what drove the project. But for me, it was first baked out of relationship and saying, I, you know, if you're around someone who's anemic and they've never had iron in their body and they think they're fine, they're really good until they get iron. And then they're like, oh my God, my world is so much better. Right. And I felt like I had been living in this anemic world where all of these things that um, should have been a part of my life were not. And so that's what kind of translated into to East Point 1.0 and 2.0. Lots there. And we keep having these like pregnant pauses because you just want to sit with some of these topics. And I am so thankful that you are taking us there and threaded through your own journey because there's just so much at play, especially in our work with nonprofit, because we have been unpacking centuries of just work around fixing communities and fixing people and providing solutions, whether people are involved or not. And it's just not worked. It's made things a lot worse and it's hit ahead. And I'm, I'm really grateful that we get to lift and amplify conversations of people that are just doing it better today. And community has to be centered at the core. Like it just, for anything sustainable, for anything meaningful and ethical and all of the things, it just has to be central. And so I know when we were talking, and I hear it in your reflection back today in the story too, like the values kind of not just set the tone, but it, it helped you make decisions. It helped you know how to find the right partners. And I wonder if you just kind of walk us through all those values. I want to say there's six or seven because when John and I were talking, I was like taking copious notes, but I'd love for you to like go through those because you know, you're going to hear for listeners of the podcast, you hear us talk about values all the time. Mm -hmm. And to me, this story is like why it's so important because it gets stuff right. This is not something you put cute on the wall that we have like company values. It's like, no, what's really the DNA of how you show up and how does that infiltrate, you know, the type of people that attract to your mission. So take us there and let's walk through them. Yeah. So, um, there was actually a project that went haywire, uh, really close to, um, this project. And so it was like watching a case study of, um, things gone wrong and it really helped in, in a way inform me and reinforce some of these ideas that we're driving. But the first one was to say that typically people who have access to power or money think they're a blessing to any community that they walk into. And outside of that being really paternalistic, it's just wrong. And so if I hold to this idea that I value um, humility and love and strength and community, they're in abundance on the east side. And so what I said was like, I will prostitute access that I have to wealth or power so that I can go be in your community. And if you'll allow me to like leverage that so I can be in your community, then I'm the one who benefits from this. So the first was to say that was going to be a fundamental driver for how we addressed redevelopment on the east side. The second was to say that the, the next thing that people are most scared of giving up whenever you get into a relationship is power. And so for me, that meant we had to be like fundamentally okay with giving up power and control. And so Sandino, who had become a friend of mine over a five or six year period, I called him and he was the first call. And I said, Hey, would you be, would you co-develop this with Pivot? 
But when I say co-develop it, you get equity, you get um, development fees, and you speak for us. And you get to veto us. If you don't like the direction you're headed, you'll have the authority to kind of put pause or stop on anything that you don't like. And so for me, that was also fundamental because, again, it goes against the grain of like, we're the development team. We should know what's best. But honestly, we don't. You know, we don't know what's best. And the only way we're going to re-level the playing field, Becky, as you were talking about, was actually giving up the thing that we value the most, which was um, authority and power. The third thing was to say that we were going to basically pay the community to, to fill the community. And so we went and we did all this stuff. We asked them what they wanted. And they said, we want access to healthcare, we want access to food, and we want representative retail. Retail that represents the kind of color of skin that we have in abundance over here. And so instead of us like actually going and hiring a broker, we said, if you bring us a tenant that signs a lease, we're going to pay you um, because you know better than we do about what your community needs. And so part of that's kind of outflowing of you know us saying we benefit from being a part of their community, but it was actually trusting them to help us build this building. The fourth thing we did was we said, um, we're going to take the money that we get from the city and instead of collecting it for us or for our equity, we're actually going to pass it to our tenants. So our tenants got about six times the amount of money that they would get on the west side of town oh to help gosh. build out their space. And then we reduced their rent by about 30%. The fourth or fifth thing that we did, you know, we wrestle with gentrification quite a bit. And so we would say that there is actually healthy gentrification in some ways, but gentrification in at-risk community communities is almost always negative because it leads to displacement. And displacement is actually one of the most destructive things that can happen to a community that has a value system because what it does is it pushes them outside of that network that has had to play the role because of, you know, especially within the black community, you have historic redlining, you have, uh, you know, over-policing, you have lack of investment from the city, you have all these things, right? And so we said, well, if we're going to do this, we actually want our tenants to, to share in the upside. So all of our tenants who signed a lease got 15% ownership in the space that they were in. And so um, the idea was to say, like, you now are our partner. This isn't a landlord-tenant relationship, but this is a partnership between the two of us. And so what was fascinating was because equity has been so withheld from that community for so long, some tenants immediately got it and were like, no one's ever offered me equity in anything, right? It is great. Other people didn't even know that it was valuable. It's like talking about something that doesn't exist. And so you think about it, well, if we never you know, let these generations um, buy a home, uh, you know, their parents or their grandparents buy a home. They can't, they have to do lease to own to get a car because no one will lend them the money to get a car. Banks don't lend them money. Like the idea of equity is like this, this thing that doesn't exist. And so for us, it became this, this passion project of us trying to help recraft some language that exists in abundance on the West side, but has been pulled out of the dictionary on the East side. Um, the next thing we did was we said, we're going to leverage. And this is really the final point was we're, we're going to leverage this project to basically train up folks from the east side to put us out of a job in the future. And so we pivot doesn't want to keep developing over on the east side in perpetuity. We actually want to raise up enough young men and women who are from the east side who can do it themselves that they don't call us anymore. And so um, that's been kind of the the heartbeat behind that project. And it's, you know, it's it's now really manifesting itself into some really cool stuff. But we can give pause there and just say, you know, that's kind of the the six six steps to what we did. Hey friends, this episode is presented by Virtuous, and they just happen to be one of our favorite companies. Let me tell you why. 
You know we believe everyone matters, and we've witnessed the greatest philanthropic movements happen when you see and activate donors at every level. And here's the thing. Virtuous created a fundraising platform to help you do just that. It's much more than a nonprofit CRM. Virtuous is committed to helping charities reimagine generosity through responsive fundraising, which is simply putting the donor at the center of fundraising, growing giving through personalized donor journeys, and by helping you respond to the needs of every individual. We love it because this approach builds trust and loyalty through personalized engagement. Sound like Virtuous may be a fit for your organization? Learn more today at virtuous.org or follow the link in our show notes. Hey friends, are you ready to take your digital engagement to the next level, but feel stuck about where to start? Let us introduce you to Feather. Feather is an amazing tech startup focused on making nonprofit outreach more impactful by connecting to your right audience, wherever they are online. Feather partners with nonprofits to create personalized digital advertising campaigns. And rather than tell you, we want to show you. The Humane Society of North Central Florida has participated in a local online giving day called The Amazing Give for many years. It's a competitive landscape for donations, so the Humane Society knew they had to maximize donations to stand out. They launched two retargeting campaigns with Feather. For $300 in ad spend, their retargeting ads brought 119 visitors to their Amazing Give donation page and generated more than $6,000 in donations in just one day. With Feather, a small amount of ad spend can go a long way. Use Feather to promote like a pro with a powerful campaign that works. Learn about their solutions for nonprofits at feather.co. That's feather without the last d.co. Now let's get back to this amazing conversation. Okay, that right there was a master class in co-build, in empathy, and the complete mind shift of breaking power dynamics. If you are someone listening right now and you have a dream in your head about building something that that you want to change the world, that right there was just a masterclass in how you step back and build it equitably. When you're looking at building partnerships, how do you take the power dynamic out of it? How do you become generous? How do you bake generosity into your culture? This reminds me so much of a conversation we had a couple seasons ago with Mike Beckham, who built in to Simple Modern, you know, we exist uh, to give generously. And I mean, this is a drinkware company, but they're setting their flag down and saying, we're here to be generous with people and with our community. And so I just want to thank you for what you've done. And it, and it feels to me like you are very much teaching a man how to fish or a woman. I have to put that in there. A woman how to fish. <laughs> you because A human. <laughs> a human how to fish. Because the replicability of this is an empowerment mechanism that is going to help train the trainer who will then train more trainers. And this is how your community grows and thrives and gets behind each other. And so John, just thank you for all of that. I'm stepping off my soapbox, but I want to hang out a little bit in what allyship looks like in real terms to you. I mean, maybe set the tone for some of the power dynamic systems that were in place that make a project like this incredibly difficult to accomplish. Talk a little bit about how you did that and any tips that you learned along the way. Yeah. So I think, you know, probably the hardest thing to, uh, to disrupt it's, it's easy to get mad at individuals, right? Cause like you can point at them and say, you're the problem. It's really hard to, to reframe the system that's been baked in 
that determines or at least influences why people act the way that they do. So for me, like if, 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 um, I was a banker and you guys asked me for money and it was 1950 and, and you were, um, a person of color, I would say like, no, you don't get my money. Like you're a person of color. We don't lend money to people like you. Right. And I would say that again in the sixties and I would say it again in the seventies, I say it again in the eighties, but by the time like two thousands roll around, I don't even have that. That's not even, I may not be racist. What I will say though is, Hey, no one's lent you money for 40 years in your community. You obviously, there's been disinvestment in your community. It's not kept up. Like, why would I risk my job to give you money? Right. And, and so the system has been baked into a point where the question is no longer or morality. It's like, how do we disrupt the system? And so the, the first thing I think that people will see whenever they, you know, you get passionate about something and you're trying to make a change. It's like, what is the system that is in place that is actually influencing people to actually ask a moral question? And so we've done a lot of projects in the urban core um, and a lot of them have been way riskier than this. We bought the tower theater. We didn't have any tenants. Um, it was an old, you know, porn theater and we didn't have any money and it was our first project and we got a bank to lend us money. Right. And so our first phase of East Point was we actually had uh, a healthcare tenant who'd been around for a hundred years, sign a 10 year lease, and they were taking up two thirds of the space um, and the building cash flowed. And so uh, I was like, this is going to be the easiest loan I've ever asked for in my life. And I started calling banks and over 25 banks wouldn't even give us a term sheet. Um, some of them said, we don't lend money to that side of town. Others just said like, oh yeah, no, they will never be able to approve that. We're sorry. And so we finally got one bank. This is after about nine months. And so we call, we call a, a bank and a bank says, hey, if you'll give up some more ownership and you'll bring someone in who's wealthier than you and they'll guarantee the debt along with you, then we'll do the deal. And so this project is, is small in comparison to development. And so it was, you know, it was a $4 million project. And so this guy that we brought in, he had $5 million of single malt scotch. He's the largest scotch collector in, in the United States. I mean, one, can we talk about having to collect on that? I mean, how great would that be? That's a story you wouldn't find me. Yeah, you wouldn't find me for like four months. Uh, but but so we, he's like, dude, I'm in. I'll do this. And we went back to the bank. And you know what the bank said was the bank said he's not rich enough. And that's whenever it hit me that um, if all I do is develop and I'm passionate about this, and I can get loans all over town and I can't get loans with a hundred year old healthcare clinic taking up 66% of the space. What do you think it's like for a 20 year old African-American kid who's trying to actually do something right? And he needs $50,000. It's impossible, right? And so that's when it moved from it being personal, like me personally being mad at bankers to me being personally mad at the system that existed and saying, okay, we got to change the system. And up to that point, I was pretty critical of the people. Um, I was using anger and shame and all of those things that don't work for anyone in our lives, right? But that's what I was trying to use as motivation. Um, and what I realized is we, we, you know, we coined this term joyous disruption. Like we had to use joyous disruption to capture somebody's heart to lend us money because there was this guilt and shame game was not winning. And so um, we called Jill Castilla, who's CEO of uh, Citizens Bank of Edmond. And really, I just was honest with her. I didn't like, I didn't pull any punches. I said, we're going to lose the deal if you don't do this. And she actually said, we'll make it happen. We'll make it work. And so she, you know, it took a female owned bank in the suburbs to lend money 
to an urban project on the east side where there'd been no develop redevelopment in 35 years. And so um, we actually just to end cap on the story, I, I called our healthcare clinic and said, good news. I know this is taking us forever, but we finally got financing. We're good to go. And they said, it took you too long to get financing. We're going to walk from our lease. We'll see you in court. And they hung up the phone. And so we consider like the founding partners of Pivot. That was probably like the lowest day in Pivot. Like we were uh, so bad. So we ended up calling a council person and um, John P- Councilman John Pettis, who was councilman at the time and said, we don't know what to do, but we're about to lose everything. And um, within a 24 hour period, he had the, the former mayor, the current mayor, head of alliance, city manager in a meeting with the owners of this healthcare clinic. And they sold them on staying, not us. And it's funny because it's only a 10,000 square foot building. So it's very small in the fabric of like all of the buildings across Oklahoma City. But I think what every one of them knew is that er- there had been so many efforts to try to do something over there and they had failed each time. And so it was that built up failure that really caused a desire to step out in a way that maybe they hadn't done before. And so it was through that, that kickstarted phase one. And then that led into the retail component. So you're talking about relationships and stuff, you know, it's, it's how do you disrupt systems? How do you see the system? And then how do you disrupt it in a way, not using shame or anger as the, as the primary motivation to get people to see what you're doing? I mean, I love that term. I love this story, but it actually like, it guts me here in the story that that happened here in our community. Um, with and I, I hear you that it's like a lot of people are not even activating, knowing why that's the way it is. They're just going through these motions that are so set, and that we've got to just do this a different way. So you're sticking out to me that you're using this term joyous disruptor, and I think a lot of our listeners. And if you're hanging with this today, and you're in the nonprofit space, and you're looking for connectivity, there's so much here, you know, of like how it connects to what our work. But I just I'm curious of what that looks like in real terms. I mean, you heard at least 25 no's from people that were probably your quote friends in town. Yeah. yeah. What's it like to keep going and saying to find that? Yes. Like where was that drive and how did you really use that joyous disruptor to find the right partner? Um, Cause I think there's something there for all of us to learn as fundraisers. Well, I think if you're like in the nonprofit world or you're in any world, you're typically like, you're not, I mean, East point, we weren't doing that to like, get rich right it was very much like our world is better you know there's a there's an old saying you know the rising tide lifts all boats and we kept saying like a rising tide floods all the boats that have holes in it and we have all these communities around downtown that have holes in it and they're they're the the they're actually the um the spread between the have and the have nots quote unquote in regard to infrastructure and economic redevelopment is growing uh in this manner and so all of these bolt boats are are flooding and so, um, you know, as we, as we look at like people saying no and joyous disruption, I think for me, it became like, I actually have to start, like, um, I have to change my tone one. I have to t- change my posture, but I also like, um, I have to actually start introducing these folks that I get to be with. I was just in Atlanta yesterday with, I guess five or six folks from East point. And we were meeting with all these different folks who were like, we're trying to learn how to do what they're doing. And they're trying to learn how, what we're doing. And it's like, I got to travel with all of them and them walking in a room and sharing what it's like to grow up where they did. Um, you know, if they, they said this, if you are a, uh, if, if you grow up in poverty and you are, um, African-American, you have a 4% chance to get 
to a 30%, I think it's a 30% wage earning position, which would be $70,000 a year. So 4% of the kids, um, and there's only 1% of white kids who grew up in, po- in, in communities that are uh, in uh, poverty. There's only 1% of white kids who grew up in areas of poverty. And so you look at the disparity between African-American kids having to grow up in poverty, and then there's only a 4% chance that they'll just make it to $70,000 a year. And I'm in a room with them. These people have overcome so much and they've done, you know, so much more than I've had to do. And that kind of um, passion that they have makes me kind of pale in comparison from what I've had to overcome, you know? So one, it's like a perspective check, like a reality check. Um, and I think the second, it's, 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 I guess, joyous disruption is also tied to persistence. And I say that in this way is that everyone, you have to be told no a lot, right? And that will either turn you away from what you're doing or it will make you double down. And for me, it was the moment of the bank saying, you know, this $5 million scotch guy is not rich enough to say that the passion for what I'm doing actually far outweighs any judgment I could issue on anyone else. And so I'm going to focus on the passion and not the judgment. And we're going to go figure it out. I I drove a guy around. He uh, was the general manager of the 76ers. And uh, he came into town through Chris Hoyle. uh, at hey, Simple Modern. And um, he spent two hours in the car with me and he asked me questions nonstop. He says, one of the smartest men I've ever been around. And he said, you know what I think about you? And he was talking about Pivot. And I was like, no, I don't really want to know what you think about me. This is terrifying. And he's like, you guys don't give up. He's like, that would be the one thing. He's like, um, and it's funny, we can sometimes downplay persistence. But if you are in the nonprofit world, like having persistence and having joy, if those are the two kind of like bedrocks, you're going to be able to figure it out. There's just so many hallmarks here that I think are missing when we build businesses. And when we build relationships, like I want to lift it out of business and just talk about how we interact with each other. I I mean, I want to commend you that a part of what you're doing in this business is constantly listening, learning, reading, asking tough questions. Um, I would say for anyone that's trying to go in and understand someone who's different than you, have allowing them to share their story. I mean, we do that literally is the first thing every time we turn on the podcast because the story informs everything. And we can't know what it feels like to fit in someone else's shoes. I can damn well assure you, I don't, as a white woman living in Oklahoma, understand what it feels like to live in poverty, but I'm passionate about it. I want it to go away. I want it to equalize. And so you have to go and travel. You have to bake in what is it like into part of your meetings. I'm using air quotes. These meetings are much more than meetings. They're experiences. I love that you're building and sharing frameworks with each other because it takes the competition out of it and it lets you scale faster. That is a great entrepreneurial hack. And I, I want to talk to you about East Point because this little community you've built it warms my heart on so many levels. I want you to describe who's in East Point. And if you have a story of how East Point has specifically changed someone or maybe changed you, I would love for you to share it as well. Yeah. And just to build off what you said a second ago, I would say too, that um, it's giving up a th- authority. So like yeah, the close friends that I have that are over there, they call me out on stuff all the time because it's, it's personal and there'll be things that I didn't even realize I said or did, right? Um, and, uh, they'll be like, do you, 
you really know what you just said, right? Or do you know asking it this way infers this? And so um, I'm genuinely distrusted because for 60 years, people have distrust, like people have lied, like people that look like me have come in and lied to the community, right? And so people are always like, well, it's hard, you know, you always distrust it. And for me, it's like, it's super refreshing. It's like, do you know how great it is to not to not be trusted when you go into a community? Because if they did trust me, I would feel like they're naive because it'd be like if my kid came and said, hey, dad, this kid's been lying to me for the last 16 months. But this month he said he's going to do this for me. I'd be like, don't believe it. Don't believe yeah. it. Like he's not going to do it, right? Like he said this for 16 months. Like we're not going to believe it this time. So for them to not trust me is actually one of the reasons why I love the community. It's like, yes, you should have doubt. Yes, you should not trust that I'm going to deliver on what I said I'm going to deliver. And that's okay. Whenever I get there and I do it and we do it together, like it will be more meaningful for all of us. So um, to your point, put yourself in places that don't feel comfortable because it's actually really great. And so there's this great story, JB, but he's a rapper and um, he's been super involved in really um, bringing to light some of the discrimination that's happened with police force and other things. But he called me one day and he said, hey, I need you to meet me at, uh, at East Point. And so we walked over to East Point and, or I drove over to East Point, pulled, got out of the car, started walking. He's like, we're going to walk to this place. So he gives me no context. We walk up to this place and it just says barber shop on it right above the door. And so we, I, you know, we open the door, I walk in and there's, there's three guys, they're playing NBA 2K. We've got a guy getting his haircut. And then we've got this man who's like six foot four, no body fat, strongest dude I've ever seen. And he's got one photo on the wall and it's a photo of JB. And so like JB and him start talking, they catch up. And then he turns to me, he starts asking me questions about East Point. Why am I doing it? What's going on? What's my heart behind it? And we get all the way done and he goes, Hey, you're good, man. I just want you to know you're good. I appreciate you coming over. And so we walk out and I'm like, JB, what the hell just happened? And he's like, well, I, I needed you to meet the mailman. He's made, he is a former gang member who is now here and respected by everyone and I needed him to meet you so that he could trust you and then bless your project. And it hit me there that JB had just rest, risked all of his political and cultural capital on me to introduce me to a guy that had the ability to really make sure that our project thrived. And we do that in our community all the time, right? Like if, you know, if John was going to go build an office building, I'd be like, hey, you need to go meet Mark Befford or Andy Burnett or whoever, because you want them to like know what you're doing and, you know, get to meet that. Right. And so uh, are you going to build this? I want you to go. And we we have this like more business, like, uh, you know, what we feel, it feels more natural to us. Right. Way to bless other people's work. JB gave me the most uh, the biggest blessing I could have asked for um, in a way that I never would have ever been able to accomplish had he not been a friend who trusted me. And so those are the moments that, that really shake you to your core and go, I can't believe that he did that for me. In regard to tenants, we have a bookstore. We've got a uh, fitness. Um, he taught Orange Theory and he opened up a gym on the east side. We've got a breakfast spot that's going to open up in about four months called Scrambled. Uh, we've got a two sisters who are home builders um, that are awesome. And they do general contracting work um, called Monarch Properties. They're there. We've got a screen print and event space. We've got actually at one, we've got one nonprofit. It's actually our goal whenever we did this was we wanted it to be at least 75% um, minority and it's 90% um, African-American owned businesses and over 50% of those are women. And so uh, we've got an optometrist. I think I said a pizza joint. JB just opened up Eastside Pizza. 
plug. It's incredible. And then we've got um, a bar called Kindred that opened up. And so we're now building off of that. We've got a project it really in the next, uh, you know, couple months we're going to talk about and announce. And uh, we're really looking at how do we continue to build this model of really bringing back. If you think about it, if you grow up on the east side, historically, you've had to leave the community to become successful because the economics have been so devastated by disinvestment for so long that you can't actually have a sustainable business within you, the community that made you who you are. And so by bringing these back, these opportunities back, what we're doing is we're not just actually allowing for people to like have options within the community, but people who are forced to leave, they get to come back to the community that they love and open up something. And then we'll continue to roll in all of these principles that we have that I shared at the beginning in terms of how we're going to help them, not just uh, do extractive development, but development that builds wealth for them. It's just an incredible story. And I have one last question that's just hanging over me. And I want to know how this experience has changed you as a human being and as a dad and as a husband and as a friend. How has this changed you, John? I think it still is. I mean, there's there's things that you can point to, right? Like all of the microaggressions that we never experience. Um, Becky is like, one, one day I brought in a general contractor in my office and Candace Bates, who's a partner with us and runs all of our acquisitions and development. I was getting ready to introduce him to her and he goes, oh, I've got a girl just like that in my office. And he just assumed that she was an assistant, right? And Candace had to sit in that. And I was like, well, no, you don't. Um, and we walked down down the road. And so like you experience things that I don't ever experience, like those those comments and the, you know, the, the lack of respect. It's just instantaneous. Um, so I've seen that with them. Uh, you know, I've got hundreds of stories of watching them politely and with care handle things that would just drive me nuts. And so one, just the compassion, you know, your heart grows in terms of saying, not in a paternalistic way, but just realizing that there's a lot that has to change in this world, right? The second thing it's probably taught me is you start realizing that there's not a silver bullet that actually fixes any, you can't have we can talk about how many hundreds of years of, of, of just brokenness um, just because of the way that someone looks and assume that one project is going to fix that or two projects is going to fix that. There has to be a holistic um, like infrastructure that comes in and helps. And so um, I think that's taught me something. Um, the third thing, and, and I think this is maybe the most important thing, is that I think that the gravitational pull of wealth is to comfort. And so I mean that in saying that if you just do your job day to day and build wealth and you don't fight anything, it's going to pull you to this place of wanting to have comfort. And so the problem with comfort is it's like, it's if you just keep building walls up around a city to prevent any bad things from happening, what ends up happening is you miss out on joy. And so I've often said that like joy and suffering are bedfellows to one another and so in so much that we're willing to walk and put our places where suffering could exist or discomfort could exist, you'll often find joy there. But in so far that we try to protect ourselves from um, any discomfort, therefore we use wealth to build walls, we become opioid addicts who actually can't feel anything anymore. And so for me, you know, and for our company, our mission is to say we are going to be we're going to be um, intentional on developing in communities at risk so that we can experience discomfort so that we can actually experience joy. 
okay, if you didn't take like parenting lessons, life lessons, <laughs> marriage <laughs> lessons, and how we just show up as people, you know, and serve these organizations. Gosh, Sean, thanks. Thank you for taking us there. Thanks for your work. And, you know, we kind of round out all of our conversations asking for you to give us a one good thing. What's something you could leave with our audience? Um, it could be a mantra. It could be a secret to success or just a tip. I mean, I think it was just what I shared is that trying to find ways you can experience discomfort so you can find joy. You know, the easiest thing in the world is to find someone doing something wrong. Um, it's really hard to catch someone doing something right. And so uh, as we experience discomfort, we're able to kind of, it's like your eyes get opened up. It's like a kaleidoscope that opens up the world. And so to those who are um, listening and, and really doing the work, you're already entering this suffering. And so I hope that you find joy around every other rock. So this is just such a beautiful story of community revitalization. And I, and the vibrancy that is baked into it and the equity is so aspirational. I just want to take the story and put it everywhere. We find a broken community who needs not just wealth, but in, in a, and a complete upswing from power dynamics, but one that is really ready to just equalize in a way. And I just can think that that has to be in every community around the world. And and man, if we could just replicate the John Dodsons and you know the JBs and get them together, get them talking and getting them building cool stuff, guys, any of you can do this. It just takes a 1% shift to go in and do something differently. Thank you so much, John, for this incredible story. How can people find you? How can they read more about East Point and about Pivot? Um, give us all the details where they can find you online. Yeah, so um, pivotproject.com is our website. So you guys can always check us out there. Well, this has been a huge honor, obviously. Like we're just kind of speechless in some of the things you've you know brought to us today. Thank you, John. What an honor and just feel really grateful for this conversation. So proud to know you. Keep going. I feel like you're at the beginning of this journey. I can't wait to see what happens in the next couple decades. Keep going. Well, thank you guys for being mouthpieces for good. I appreciate it. And I'm the one who feels super excited that I got to hang out with John and Becky today. So thank you guys. <laughs> Let's go be joy disruptors, everybody. An okay. awesome call Love to it. action. Thanks, John. Thanks, man. Thanks. Hey friends, thanks so much for being here. Did you know we create a landing page for each podcast episode with helpful links, freebies, and even shareable graphics? Be sure to check it out at the link in this episode's description. You probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission than ever before. We'd love for you to join our good community. It's free, and you can think of it as the after party to each podcast episode. You can sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. One more thing, if you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us and your support helps more people find our community. Thanks, friends. I'm our producer, Julie Comfer, and our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. 
Can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.